Brethren, we have just, as was mentioned by the sermonette speaker, Mr. Hall, we have just completed the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. And for those of you who are baptized, we just over a week ago had the opportunity to partake of the symbols of Jesus Christ once again. One of those symbols being the bread, bread that is unleavened bread that is blessed during the Passover ceremony, unleavened bread that is broken during the Passover ceremony and set about to all of us who are partakers. We have the opportunity to place that broken bread into our mouths and be reminded that it symbolizes the broken body of Jesus Christ. And as we were reminded at the Passover also, that bread as the broken body of Jesus Christ reminds us that Christ's body was broken in great part so that we can be healed. In fact, you may have read, as I did in my own Bible study leading up to the Passover, the passages in Isaiah that talk about, prophesied about Jesus Christ coming one day as the Messiah, his body being broken and being beaten beyond measure to the point where his visage, the way he looked, was indistinguishable to the man he was when things started. But he went through that so that we can be healed through those stripes. Those of you who have been anointed have heard that prayer. That God's, Jesus Christ's broken body would be applied to you for your healing. <clears throat> we often talk about the importance of healing and faith in healing, don't we? We know Jesus Christ spoke about the importance of faith and how in some cases he, as the son of God, was unable to heal because of the lack of faith of the people he was working with. Christ did suffer so that we can be healed. Yet there's even another aspect of faith and healing. You know, when we look around the church today, how many brethren do you see suffering? How many of us? are suffering physically. How many are suffering physically who have been anointed and who haven't been healed yet? Is it because everyone who's been anointed lacks faith? Or might there be other reasons, another powerful reason why people who are anointed and seem to have a great deal of faith, have not been healed yet. Is there something maybe we, we fail to consider from time to time? Brethren, today I want to talk about an aspect of faith and healing that sometimes we do forget to consider. Many have the faith to be healed, brethren. As a member of God's church for my entire life, as a minister for quite a while now, I have the gray hair and the wrinkles to prove it. I've had the opportunity, the privilege of interacting with many of God's people, laying hands on many of God's people as an elder, asking for God's intervention over people I know have a great deal of faith and in probably many cases more faith even than I have. Then watching them not be healed. Many have the faith to be healed, brethren, but... How many of us have the faith not to be healed? How many of us have the faith that when God says, no, I'm not going to heal you or I'm not going to heal you yet. How many of us have the faith to continue to have faith in God as the healer? Brethren, my title for my sermon today is the faith to not be healed. We're going to talk about that subject today. And I guess I should give a little bit of a preface, uh, maybe an insight into those of us that have the privilege of speaking, uh, I can't speak for every speaker, but I know most of us are in this situation. Most of what you hear us talk about are lessons that we learned or are learning as individuals in God's church. We're all members of the body. We are all works in progress in the hands of the Almighty God. He's molding and fashioning every single one of us, the ministry included. And so when you hear messages from us, Remember that you're hearing lessons we're learning too. 
over the years, I feel like God has been um, impressing on me some insight into the topic we're going to talk about today. He's been forcing me to learn some things, whether I've wanted to learn them or not. Isn't that how God works? He's molding and fashioning us. He's trying to bring us to his way of thinking and looking at things. And so I, as you, have had many opportunities to learn lessons about faith and healing. Let's talk, let's flip first to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, and we'll look at a very familiar scripture. Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. We see many paragons, men and women of faith mentioned in this chapter, some by name, some by exploit. But we see an emphasis on faith. And in verse 6, we read a very familiar passage. I think all of us are familiar with this passage. Hebrews 11, verse 6, we're reminded that without faith, it is impossible to please him. That is to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If we want to please God, he says we've got to have faith. And in fact, when we look at that word please in the Greek, without faith it's impossible to please God. It means more than just make him happy. It means to entirely gratify him. Lots of things we do for God can make him happy. But to entirely gratify him is impossible to do unless we have faith. Why is that? Why would that be? Why is it impossible to please God without faith? Because the reality is that if we do not have faith, we doubt God's power, don't we? We doubt his ability. In essence, we doubt that he is the Almighty. And so when we come to him to please him, he wants to know that we know that he is the almighty God. He wants us to have faith and he creates opportunities for us to have faith. Let's come back to this concept of faith in healing for a minute. How many of us, when we are sick and in need of healing, call for the elders, are anointed and want to be healed immediately? instantaneously. Some of us have had that happen before, haven't we? Many of us as ministers, I think, from time to time have that happen. We lay hands on someone, we're praying, and by the end of the prayer, someone's healed. In fact, sometimes during the prayer, they are healed. I remember... A man coming to me on the Feast of Unleavened Bread one holy day. It was five minutes before church. And he said, would you please anoint me after services? And I could tell in his eyes he was in pain. And he wasn't standing up straight. I, I guessed it was his back, and that was a correct guess. He said, my back has been killing me for weeks. I've been to doctors, I've been done all these things, and nothing's working. So as a last resort, he came to the ministry. And he said, would you anoint me after church? And I looked at him and I said, we've got five minutes. Let's anoint you now. We don't need to wait for two hours to get this process started. And so we walked into the anointing room. I anointed him. And as I was praying, he straightened up. It was one of those healings. We finished. He said, I think I'm healed. After church, he came up to me and he said, I think I'm healed. He called me three days later and he said, I think I'm healed. He called me two weeks later and he said, I'm still healed. It was an amazing healing. But brethren, it was a healing of a man who didn't have much faith. It was a a man who didn't have much faith. God was the last option. Weeks later, he didn't stay in the church. I'm not sure he believed that the church he was attending was the church of God. He didn't believe the minister anointing him was a minister of God. I can tell you that much. And God healed him. God had a point to make. God's point was, you come to me because I'm the healer. And I heal through my church and through my ministry. What was interesting, though, to me was... This is a man who didn't have great faith. 
I have had the privilege, as have many ministers in this room, of anointing people who we know have fantastic faith. I've anointed people who I know have more faith than me. And I don't, I have to grow in faith. I don't think I have a teeny tiny bit of faith, though. I think I've been growing in faith. Most of us, when we ask for healing, we want to be anointed and we want it now. And that's not wrong. God commands us in James chapter 5, doesn't he? When you're sick and in need of healing, call for the elders. And the effective, fervent prayer of faith will avail much. That's the command. We'll come back to that. But brethren, what if we're not healed immediately? What if we're not even healed in this life? What if God allows us to continue to suffer for more days, for weeks, for months, for years? Mr. Strain, I'm going to use the word for decades. Some of you in this room have been suffering for decades. You've been anointed multiple times and God hasn't healed yet. I've known, as you have, many who suffered that long. It it provokes the question, do we have the faith to wait on Him, knowing that God Almighty never makes a mistake, to trust Him completely, to know that of all beings in the universe, He knows, He knows exactly what He is doing. I think we know that. And we certainly build that kind of faith when we're not healed. But brethren, why would God choose not to heal us immediately when we do come to him in full faith? He's the one that commanded us to come to him in full faith. Why might he not heal us immediately? We need to remember, I'm going to look at some examples in a moment, but we need to remember, brethren, that God has used health trials for millennia. As a powerful teaching tool. As a powerful perfecting tool for his saints. He's used health trials for millennia. Who might you think of? When you think of health trials. Of individuals of saints over the ages. Who God chose not to heal ever. Or at least not to heal initially. Let's go to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1. You know the story. You know the individual. An individual who lived close to probably 4,000 or more years ago. And how do we see him described by the Almighty God in God's inspired word? Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, And one who feared God and shunned evil. Brethren, how many of us in this room would not want God to label us that way? Don't you want to be labeled by God that way? This man or this woman is blameless. They're upright. They fear me. And they shun evil. What do these words mean? Think about it. Blameless. It doesn't mean perfect. It means without blame. It means above reproach. It means those who are going to look at us and scrutinize us. As hard as they try, they can't find anything overtly wrong. There's nothing to blame us for. Not perfect. But it means we don't have these big outward sins that people can see. Upright. The word means straight. Standing straight before God. On track. Morally straight. Job feared God. He had an awe of God. Not a perfect awe, but he did have a semblance of an awe of God. And certainly he shunned evil. He turned his back on evil. He stayed away from evil to the point where he, when his kids got together and had parties, he would offer offerings on their account just in case they sinned. He wanted to be safe. He didn't want anything to be wrong before God. This is the man, Job, who later on in this chapter, we see God actually, um, in a sense, bragging to Satan the devil, don't we? Satan comes before God and God says, look at my servant, Job. 
I think about a father or a mother or even more, a grandparent bragging on their grandchild. Look at this. I'm proud of this man. And Satan said, oh, yeah, you let me at him. You got to hedge around him. Let me at him and see what happens. And so God did that, didn't he? Some physical trials hit first. Powerful emotional trials, financial trials. All ten children killed in one episode. Raiders come in and they take his donkeys and they take his camels and they kill his servants and they take his wealth. Job refuses to criticize God and God brags on him once again. Chapter 2. Satan comes. God says, look at my servant Job. And Satan said, let me strike his flesh. Let me give him a health trial. And then he'll curse you. In almost the entire rest of the book of Job, we see Job suffering under this health trial on top of the family trial and the financial trial and the whole life trial. He's struck with boils, probably painful boils, very likely stench-filled boils because he's away from the house. And then his friends come and three of them criticize him, make false accusations about him, and Job bears it. God doesn't heal Job. In fact, through most of the trial, Job is still praising God. Let's turn to the end of the book of Job, though. Job 42. What was Job's conclusion at the end of his trial? Almost at the end of his trial, because it looks as though Job drew this conclusion before God healed him. God let this health trial go on. God did not intervene immediately with the health trial. And you know, if Job had these characteristics, certainly he was praying, God, please heal me. He was crying out to God, the healer. But in Job 42, verse 1, we see Job answered the Lord. And God had just, uh, following Elihu, the young man who began putting Job in his place correctly, helping Job see what he missed, God spent five chapters, Job 38 through 41, talking about his own magnificence and how Job lost track of that. And so here in Job 42, we see Job answering the Lord. He says, I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That's all Job said. And then God went on, apparently, to heal him. Job had to come to a deeper awe of God, a deeper appreciation. He had to come to realize how awesome this God was, this God that had chosen not to heal him in the short term. He had to come to realize that this was the God of gods, the almighty, the everlasting one, the one who was and is and is yet to come. The one who named the stars, all of them, and he put them in the heavens. The one who stores up the wind, who holds back the sea and all of these things. Job had to come to a deeper understanding. The trial had to change his perspective on who God was. After Job drew the lessons, God healed him. And Job prayed for his friends and God forgave his friends. Let's look at another example. If you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I think many of you could probably guess that's where we're headed. As you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let me set the stage here just a little bit. Because, yes, we're going to read about the Apostle Paul. Did the Apostle Paul have faith? Think about it. Here's an individual who God called to a life of ministry. And at the beginning of his ministry, God said, you're going you're to have a hard time, my friend. And you're going to die a hard death. 
He knew it from the beginning. God struck him down with blindness for three days to get his attention. He was shipwrecked, spent a night and a day in the deep. He was beaten 39 lashes. He says, what was it, three times? He was stoned and left for dead twice. And then in one of those situations, he went back to the same city where they stoned him. Closer to the end of his ministry, he was in Antioch getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And some of the brethren in Antioch had a vision that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's not going to get out of this one. It's going to be dangerous. And he knew it. They wept on his shoulders and he said, no, I've got to do what God wants me to do. And he went to Jerusalem and he was in prison, shipwrecked again on the way to Rome, bitten by a poisonous snake in Malta that God didn't allow to kill him. And his ministry continued. God used Paul to write how many books in the New Testament? Fourteen. How many books did Moses write? Five. Hmm. Did Paul have the opportunity possibly to become a little bit puffed up with his gift of writing? The fact that God moved his pen more than any other person in history? Possibly so. Let's jump into 2 Corinthians 12 and we see a reference here. Paul is actually recognizing that. 2 Corinthians 12, we'll start reading in verse 7 here. I'm going to break in. He says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. God revealed a lot to Paul that Paul put on paper. In many of his letters and his epistles, the abundance of revelations. Again, Moses penned five books. Paul's letters were shorter, but he penned 14. Paul's writings take up about a third of the New Testament. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, he says, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. He recognized where it came from, and he recognized, he began to recognize why. Lest I should be exalted above measure. By what? The abundance of revelations. How God had used him. He actually trained under Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Apparently, Christ came back to do that with him. Concerning this thing, verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. This is a, a thorn in the flesh, like Job's thorn in the flesh. This is a physical health trial that Paul had. Many speculate it probably had to do with his eyes. He may have had macular degeneration. He might have had cataracts. We even see evidence of that in some of Paul's later letters. that he, He's not writing them anymore. He had traveling companions. Why? It's very possible later in his ministry he was blind. He says, I pleaded with the Lord three times. Paul went to God asking, heal me that it might depart from me. Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God said, Paul... I have given you incredible opportunities. Number one, I've given you a calling, an election. Your name is written in the book of life. You're going to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I've also given you the opportunity to be one of my apostles. To raise up churches and bring people into the family of God. You don't need to be healed right now. My grace is sufficient. I've given you enough. Paul recognized God was talking to him about that. He goes on, he says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in in needs, excuse me, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, Then I am strong. 
Paul realized that it was when he was made physically weak that he became spiritually strong. And God used this health trial to help him do that. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy, this is the last letter we believe Paul wrote. He was imprisoned when he was writing this letter. He was possibly blind when he was writing this letter. Had this man suffered? Did he understand trial? Probably more than most. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Actually, let's start in verse 11. 2 Timothy 2.11, For this is a faithful saying, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. We have to endure with Christ. Paul got that. Brethren, how did Paul get to the point in his life where he was able to make these observations? If we endure with Christ, we shall reign with him. Had Paul endured with Christ? Yes. Through thick and through thin, through beatings and through torture, fighting lions, potentially being blinded, not being healed. And he's drawing these conclusions, continuing, if we deny him, we all, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. But in verse 12, again, we're told, if we endure, we shall reign with him. Let's go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. <clears throat> we read a scripture here that I think we're all familiar with. It's an interesting one when we think about trials. Uh, verse 2, James chapter 1 and verse 2. It's one that when we're in the midst of trial, especially Health trials, painful trials, literally painful. It's really hard to find it joyful. But James makes this observation, doesn't he? Under God's inspiration, brethren, count it all a joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. What are we supposed to remember when we're in various trials? That when God tests our faith, it produces patience. But, verse 4, patience, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is an interesting one to think about, isn't it? The testing of our faith produces patience. So to produce patience, we have to have our faith tested. And then patience, if we continue to have patience, it brings about what? A perfect work, it makes us, it perfects us, makes us complete, lacking nothing. But it takes our faith being tested and it takes us building patience to be able to work toward perfection and to lack nothing. That's the equation that James puts down here. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4, this is another letter of the Apostle Paul. This is one of his prison epistles. Paul was imprisoned at this point. He was in chains, suffering. Yet he gives us such encouraging words. And we know that he's not just blowing hot air, as we say. He got it. He understood it. He was there. Not just that he'd been there. He was there with suffering. I wonder what state... If, he, if it was an eye issue with him, I wonder what state his eyes were in at this point. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. See, he says, be anxious for nothing. Don't worry. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. We, we pray to God. We ask God. James, 1, or James chapter 5 tells us when we're sick, go, ask for the elders, ask for healing, ask for anointing. It's not wrong to ask God to be healed and be healed now. He expects us to do that. With thanksgiving, with supplication and prayer, let your request be made known to God. In verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts in your minds through Jesus Christ. 
When we pray to God knowing He is God Almighty and we have faith in Him and we know He's in control and we know His choices and His decisions for us are perfect, we can have peace in that. He will grant us His peace. This peace that surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make sense, but it can be there. Brethren, how many people have you known in God's church? who are enduring incredible trials, but have also almost unimaginable peace. No, they're not jumping up and down saying, oh yeah, bring it on more. But they have peace. They know God's in control. They're able to endure. Let's go to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, we'll read just a couple short psalms here, where God is revealing to us some of the lessons he wants us to learn through trials, including health trials. Psalm 27. This is a psalm of David. So uh, uh, an understanding that David came to as well. Psalm 27, verse 14. We're told, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Trials are hard. It's hard to wait, isn't it? When we go to God in prayer, we ask to be healed. We don't want to wait. At least I don't. That's not why I've gone to ministers and asked for anointing so that I can just wait. I'm being honest with you. And I think most people that have come to me, I don't know about the rest of the ministry, I'm joking. But when they come to me and ask for anointing, they want to be healed. And that's good and that's right. Yet we see God remind us, wait on the Lord. He shall strengthen your heart when you wait on him. When you're able to say, okay, God, you're in control. I know that. I'm going to let you be God, even though, God, you really know what I want. But I'm going to let you be God and I'm going to trust you know what you're doing. Psalm 37. Psalm 37 and verse 9. Psalm 37 verse 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord... (laughs) They shall inherit the earth. Those who wait on the Lord will inherit the earth. We were we given perspective with that on waiting on God and how important that is and how powerful it is. First Corinthians 10. Let's go back to the writings of Paul once again. And again, Paul in first Corinthians 10 and verse 13, where we're going to pick up is talking about trials A man acquainted with trials. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. What are we told? We're we're given to me what is one of the most powerful scriptures that relate to trials. There's three powerful elements here. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except as such is, is common to man. The trials we have are not unique to us. Ours is not the worst ever. Which is something that when we're in trial, it feels like sometimes for most of us, in part because Satan's trying to deceive us into thinking that. Paul says it's not the worst ever. You're not alone. You're not the only one. And then he continues. He says, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Yes, he may push you beyond what you think you're able. He'll take you where you thought you could never go in a trial. And he definitely does that in health trials. You know, many of us who've been enduring health trials can look back and say, you know, if I had known three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, That this trial would go this long, I would have said, shoot me. Don't let me do this because I can't do it. Yet we're reminded through these trials, what? 
What was Paul's conclusion? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Brethren, there's two aspects of that, of that profound truth. One of them is head knowledge. Every single one of us in here, I think, gets that. But then gravity has to take over and it has to bring it down to here. And coming to understand that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and that is who we are, is a whole nother situation. And it took Paul, I'm sure, decades to get to that point. Decades of suffering, decades of trial. And then we see, we'll continue here, but with the temptation, he'll also make a way of escape that you may be, may be able to bear it. God will leave an out. Sometimes that out is healing immediately after a trial, like we saw with Job. Sometimes God lets the trial continue, that health trial, but he gives us what we sometimes call a breather. We can come up for air. It lets off a little bit and we can regroup before it flares up and hits us again. Sometimes the way of escape is to go to sleep and to wake up in the resurrection. Something we don't always think about. Because we're human. Humans don't think of death as an opportunity. We think of it as an end. But how does God think of it? I'm not going to turn to Isaiah 57, but it's one of my favorite scriptures, verses 1 and 2. And it talks about how the righteous are removed from the faith of e face of evil. Sometimes the escape hatch to a health trial is to go to sleep. To have our names indelibly written in the book of life, never to be removed. And in the next second of our consciousness, boom, we rise in the air to meet Jesus Christ, never to suffer again. Sometimes that's the way of escape. Now, I forgot to turn to a scripture related to Jesus Christ, and we need to do that quickly. Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, when we think about Christ's suffering, we think about God not intervening and fixing his flesh. We have to think about it in the context of Hebrews chapter 2 as well. Again, this is another scripture, brethren, I know you know, but it's important in the context of Jesus Christ. And in the context of the topic we're talking about today, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. Hebrews 2, verse 10, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many children and many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Did you get that? The captain of our salvation. You know that scripture. You've heard it. He was made perfect through what? He was made perfect through sufferings, brethren. He knew he was going to suffer the night before he was crucified, and he sweat blood. Mr. DeSimone gave a sermon, a graphic sermon on that about a year ago. He sweat blood, and he cried out to God three times, If it's possible, Father, take it away. I don't want to do it. And of course, he also had the perspective of remembering God's plan and knowing that God's plan was his plan from the beginning too. And it was perfect. Not your will, not my will, but yours be done. You know, it's interesting when he was on the cross. An event happened, didn't it? He cried out. What was the last thing he said before he died? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've thought about that, and I think we've, we've speculated about exactly what that meant. I was meditating on that again this morning, and one of the thoughts I've had is, in, in some ways, it seems like Jesus Christ had an open phone line to the Father for his whole life. We see it even back when he was 12 years old. He had a connection, a spiritual connection to God the Father. And it wasn't a one-way connection, it was a two-way connection. He prayed before Lazarus was resurrected and the father answered him. 
They had an interactive communication and the, the, the line was open the whole time until right before he died. He became sin for us. It was like God hung up the telephone. He was disconnected from the Father from the first, for the first time ever. And he cried out, why have you forsaken me? He knew the Father was still on his throne. He knew the plan would continue. Christ had faith in the Father that this would all work out and in three days he would be resurrected. He had not, I, I, he couldn't have had a doubt in that. But for a short period of time, he felt alone. And he cried out, where are you, Father? Some of us have cried out with that, haven't we? We've been praying. We've gone to God. We've asked for healing. We've fasted. We've begged. We've prayed for faith. And we've said, Father, why aren't my prayers going higher than the ceiling? Why aren't you hearing me? Christ said the same thing. For the first time in his life, when he was on the cross, at that moment, he was fully human in a way he hadn't been his entire ministry. He knew what it was like to not have that direct answer immediately, and he had to wait. Brethren, he doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. But through that suffering, he was what? The perfect God was perfected further through the suffering. Romans chapter 8. Please turn there with me. Another letter from Paul. Romans chapter 8. And verse 17, powerful scripture here, brethren. And you've got to ask yourself again, why is Paul writing what he's writing? Certainly God inspired it, but Paul wasn't a robot. Paul was putting pen to paper with lessons that God was leading him to learn and to pass on to all of us. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 Verse 16, Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we are, brethren, we're called, we're first fruits. We bear Christ's name, don't we? We're Christians. We're children of God. And verse 17, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, we are called to inherit all things with Christ. We've heard sermons about that before. I won't go into detail on that. But that's hugely important to remember. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Did you get it? Did you catch it? If indeed we suffer with Christ, if we suffer like Christ suffered. Peter talks about the same thing in 1 Peter 4. He talks about we have to go through fiery trials and we have to suffer as Christ. It's part of the calling. It's part of the perfecting, isn't it? We, like Christ, before us, leading the way, the first of the first fruits, we too are made perfect. We're made right. Through suffering. Most of you are aware, I think just about everybody here is aware, that we have been going through a health trial with our daughter over the last number of years. And you all have been so supportive and so loving and so encouraging through our trial. It's not over yet. Thankfully, Tara's in an upturn right now. She's not been healed yet. Uh, She's still very sick, but boy, it's way better than it was. Is God healing her? Is this a process going up? Oh, we hope so. If not, he's giving us a breather that we are so grateful for. 
But you know, she's been sick. You've seen her in the wheelchair when she's in so much pain she can't walk. Some of you seen her have a pretty severe um, seizure about a year ago. And you haven't seen the half of it. And I know you know that. Things have been tough for us. Things have been tough for you. Things are tough for all of us. Tara has been anointed by multiple ministers multiple times. I've anointed her for flare-ups. I I can't count how many times anymore. And some of those God has intervened. He hasn't healed her, but he's intervened in a flare-up. And he's stopped a situation. Sometimes in such detail, it's like he's been just answering the prayer and checking off the requests in the prayer. God's been that involved. But he hasn't healed her yet. You know, some of you have heard the Laura Story song, Blessings. Some of you sung that song, contemporary Christian piece. And in a middle line, she asks a question about getting to know God. She says, what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know he's near? Now, for Tara, I think she hit a thousand sleepless nights a couple of years ago. For her mom and I. We're not there yet, but I think we're probably getting close to a thousand sleepless nights with this trial. When I look out in the room, I see people in this room who I know hit a thousand sleepless nights a long time ago. And God hasn't healed it yet. What do we learn through these trials, brethren? What am I learning about healing and faith? Through these trials, you know, when you are buried under trial, you cry out, don't you? You cry out for mercy first. And then you cry out for vision. God, what am I missing? What do I need to see? What am I supposed to learn? Because I know you're not a vindictive God. You're a loving God who's trying to change me into you. And so you look and you ask and you learn and you begin to see Wait, this trial is not just for one person, is it? This trial is for everybody connected with this one person. Everybody learns. When I look at my daughter's health trials, she's grown incredibly. But I'm not sure who's grown more, her or me. My wife has grown. My son has grown. Extended family members have grown. Many of you have grown with us as we have grown with you through your trials. The trials are beyond us, brethren, as individuals. God's got a bigger plan. You know, I was talking to a church member here a number of years ago who was dying of cancer. And it was... About a year and a half into his cancer trial. And he came to a point where he he knew God was going to let him die. And this is important to remember, too. Sometimes we look at people who have had severe trials, health trials, and they get to a point where they think God's going to just let them die. And we think, oh, you don't have enough faith. God's going to heal you. Well, they know God's going to heal them. It's just a matter of when. But I'm convinced, I've I've been through this with enough of God's people, that I think God, in many cases, through His Holy Spirit, informs these individuals. I'm not going to heal you yet, or I'm not going to heal you in this life. And that gives an incredible amount of peace. And we see that in our loved ones who are suffering. Sometimes something just changes, and they have a peace that does surpass all understanding. Anyway, this man who I looked up to in many ways, uh, we were talking, and he had reached a place where he, he said, Dr. Scott, I, I have no doubt God can heal me. He'll heal me in a second. But I don't think that's his will. And then he said, when I look back on this trial, would I have been loved to have been healed when it started a year and a half, two years ago? He said, of course. But then he said, I wouldn't have learned any of the lessons that I've learned over the last year and a half. 
This trial has been good. And he was right. The trial changed him. His trial changed me. And it changed his family. And it changed those of us who knew him. I've seen that kind of change in my family with an ongoing trial. Brethren, we learn about the perspective of the Father through trials. When we have to watch a loved one suffer and we can't do anything about it, all we can do is pray and hope. We get a glimpse into the Father's perspective. Think about it. For 33 and a half years, the Father was on the throne while His Son was on the earth. His Son was being mocked. I'm guessing he got beat up growing up as a kid. He was teased. He was threatened. He was lied about to his face publicly in front of Pilate. He was beat up. He was spat upon. He was torn up. He was nailed up. And the father couldn't do anything about it. Yes, he was God. He could have intervened, couldn't he? But he couldn't. He had a plan. And he had faith in the plan, and so did Christ. And that's why he did what he did. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The father couldn't interrupt. He had to let the plan run his course. And he had to watch his boy die. When we suffer, watching a loved one suffer, We learn about the perspective of our Father in heaven who's had to do the same thing. Without suffering, brethren, how do you learn that lesson? You can read about it in a book. But it's head knowledge. To enter God's kingdom, we have to have heart knowledge as well. You know, as a family, we've come to a much more profound appreciation for God and how awesome He is. How powerful He is. How much He cares about us. And it's amazing. It's ironic in a way from a worldly perspective. How do you come to a conclusion like that when it seems like God is not hearing your prayer for healing? But so many of you have learned the same lesson. When you're not healed, you begin looking at God in a different way. You begin seeing your trials as something different than just a trial. It's a change process. One of the lessons I've come to realize, not only with our family trial here, but in going through so many trials like this with God's people over the years, is that, brethren, as long as we live in Satan's world, we will suffer. Isn't that part of the lesson of unleavened bread? Sin causes suffering. The Messiah had to die on the cross and suffer before. Why? Because of sin. We live in Satan's sinful world. The Israelites for the first three plagues in Egypt went through every single plague with the Egyptians. Some of the suffering physically we have, we bring on ourselves. But I've worked with too many of God's people to be able to draw the conclusion that every bit of suffering we bring on ourselves. No, much of the health suffering we have is because we live in this world, isn't it? The food's messed up, the air's messed up, the water's messed up. There's too much stress, there's too much light, there's too much pollution It's sin and it results results from greed when you come down to the end of it. We live in Satan's world. We have to suffer in Satan's world. To come to realize that we need another world. And that's part of the reason we suffer too. So we get it. So that we can work with people in the kingdom of God. And we know what they've been through. We understand suffering. We can empathize with them. We can help them. If we don't suffer, we don't 
have the ability to work with them as well. Yeah, we can have head knowledge. But one of the things I've learned in working with prisoners is that, you know, I've been visiting prisoners in prison since I've been a teenager. I've been in a lot of prisons from the outside. I understand what happens in them. I've talked a lot with our church members about what goes on. But brethren, I've never been inside, not as a prisoner. In the kingdom of God, I don't think I'll be working with prisoners, even though I probably understand prisons better than the average person. You know who's going to be working with prisoners? Paul. And some of our members today who are in prison, our ambassadors in chains, they get it. They understand on a level that most of us can't. When we suffer, we understand on a much deeper level. Our suffering, brethren, is a tool that God uses to increase our faith and he increases the faith of others through it as well. As we've been talking, it takes faith, brethren, but it takes a different kind of faith, perhaps even a more mature faith to suffer through a trial and not be healed and still have faith in God to be the healer, to not lose that faith. God builds faith through these kinds of trials, a more profound faith through these kinds of trials. When God chooses not to heal quickly, we have to have faith and perspective that some of the following things will happen. Number one, he can heal immediately, but he has a different, a bigger plan for us. We have to know that. And those of us who suffer, we learn that, don't we? I look around and I see it in many of God's people. We have to trust that he knows, number two, what he's doing in allowing us or a loved one to continue to suffer. We can't doubt Satan will shoot the fiery darts of doubt. And we have to come back and say, no, he's a liar and the father of lies. It's wrong. Number three, we have to have faith, the faith to allow God to carry out his will. And yet still find peace in the trial. When we finally come to the point where we allow God to reign in our life through the ongoing trial, we have peace. And that's what we see in each other. When we see our brothers and our sisters suffering and they they come to a level of peace in that suffering, they've come to a point where they've let God reign in their life. That's a huge spiritual milestone. Number four, we have to have faith to be able to be thankful that God has called us and that He, the Almighty God of the universe, has faith in us. That we will make it through this trial. That's profound. That God has faith in us that the trial won't crush us. But that we'll draw closer to him and grow through it. And number five, we have to have enough faith that we can step back from our trial. And see the awesome work God is doing in us. And in those around us. Years ago, I had the privilege of serving in a in a church area with a man who wasn't much older than I am now. He had cancer. This scourge of Satan society. It's a Satan-inspired plague. He had cancer, and he was dying of cancer. And it, it lasted a little while, but it was pretty quick. And we talked on multiple occasions. And this man had been in the church for a couple of decades He had the most amazing perspective. He's one of those who began to change my perspective on faith and healing. The last time I met with him in his home with his wife, he had come to the point where he, God had let him know that God wasn't going to heal him in this life. He knew he was going to die. He knew God would let him die. He didn't doubt that God could heal him in a second, but he knew God would let would probably not do that. And as our visit wound down, I asked him, I said, what can I pray for specifically? It was interesting what he said. He didn't say, pray that I don't have pain. And if he had prayed that, that would have been absolutely Perfect 
to ask for. Nothing wrong with it. Absolutely right. The kind of cancer he had was extremely painful. He looked at me. He looked me in the eye. And he said, pray that I can bring glory to God as I die. I want to do this right. Did he have the faith to be healed? (laughs) That's child's play. That was child's play for that guy. That man, that saint. Pray that I can bring glory to God as I die. I want to do this right. He saw the big picture. He saw what God was doing. He saw how God was changing him. And in his physical death, he wanted to bring glory to that great God of the universe, the Almighty, the one who gives life and takes life away and raises up life again. And he knew that resurrection was coming. What an amazing attitude. What an amazing perspective. And brethren, when I first met him, he didn't have that perspective. He was putting on, he had a perspective that wasn't human. He had a godly perspective. He had a godly perspective that comes through the perfecting that happens when we suffer. Brethren, trials, especially health trials, are one of the most powerful tools God has to change us and to lead us to become more like him. We need to know and we need to understand that profound truth. And as we do, we develop the faith needed to endure the trial of not being healed. Brethren, God is an awesome God. God is our healer. That's one of his titles. Yahweh Rafika, the eternal, the ever living one who heals. He tells us to come to him in full faith. He wants us to come to him and ask for healing. And he knows that the perfect prayer of faith avails much. But brethren, go back and read that in James 5 when you get a chance. It avails much. It doesn't say the perfect prayer of faith results in immediate healing. It avails much. Sometimes that availing is not being healed. And the awesome and dynamic changes that happen when healing doesn't happen. Physical healing doesn't happen. Brethren, we must approach God in full faith, requesting healing. We still need to do that. If you're sick today, go to the elder on duty. Go see Mr. Frank. Ask him to anoint you in the name of Jesus Christ, our healer. Have faith that God will heal because he will. But we must know that God has a timeline that is always not ours. And a plan that is way beyond ours, oftentimes. Never forget that some of God's greatest work is accomplished when he delays healing. Or when he chooses not to heal. Brethren, we've talked about biblical examples today that show faith and that show perspective developed by God's servants who were not healed or who were not healed immediately. We have examples all around us in God's church who are not healed or who are not healed immediately, but whose lives have changed, whose perspectives have changed, whose hearts look more like God's because of the perfection in them through their suffering. We must continue to grow in faith, brethren. We must, with God's help, develop the faith necessary to be healed. We can't please him without it. But brethren, we must develop the godly faith and perspective needed to not be healed. This is the faith that I have seen and I know you have seen in so many of God's saints. Some who are living and some who have fallen asleep. You know, this individual I told you about earlier who told me that looking back, in a way he was glad for his trial because it changed him in a way that he wouldn't have changed beforehand. We were were talking around that same period of time. 
And I just let him know I'm continuing to pray. And he said, Scott, I, I appreciate it. And he said, I know God will heal me. And he could heal me right this second. But if he doesn't, and he looked at me with a grin and a gleam in his eye. He said, I'll beat you to the kingdom. Yes, if, if my life goes until, the, until Christ return, he will beat me to the kingdom. Because the dead in Christ rise first. Brethren, the faith to not be healed results in the perspective that Jesus Christ displayed. The faith to not be healed results in the perspective that Job came out with at the end of that trial. The faith to not be healed results in the perspective that Paul had. And I'm going to give you a final quote here from Romans 8:18. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to just cite it for you. Romans 8, verse 18. And again, think about what kind of life events led Paul to be able to conclude what he did. This was a man like Christ who was very aware of suffering. Paul had been through it. This was a man of deep faith. This was a man who was willing to be a martyr and was. He didn't back away from it. And what did he say in Romans 8, verse 18? He said, for I, for I consider, I think about, I ponder over the fact that the sufferings of this present age, the trials in this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Our God is an awesome God. Our God doesn't like suffering, but He uses it and He's used it for millennia to mold and fashion and perfect His saints. James talked about, find it a joy when you fall into trials. Why? Because of this. Because God uses these trials and he uses situations even when he doesn't heal to make us more perfect. Hang in there, brethren. We're going to get there. And we're going to help introduce a world without suffering.